You are listening to the teaching ministry of Christ the King Reformed Baptist Church, located in Utica, New York. At Christ the King, our desire is for you to not only know Jesus as Savior and Lord, but to also learn to walk joyfully in obedience to God's commands. To learn more about our church, please visit us at www.kingskirk.org. That's K-I-N-G-S-K-I-R-K dot O-R-G. All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Job chapter 1. We're going to be continuing through Job uh, this morning. We're going to turn uh, to chapter 1, verses 13 through 22. It is a larger chunk of the text, uh, but it didn't feel right to try and divide it up uh, in this way as, as it's part of a cohesive storyline, and I think it's meaningful uh, most as a chunk together, uh, and you'll see why as we go through. Uh, and when you get there, uh, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Job chapter 1, starting at verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Thus the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So this is the third sermon that I've done so far that we've gone through together on Job. And just to bring anyone who wasn't here for those first two sermons, I will just briefly recap what we know so far about Job and the context of what's going on here so that this section might be put into its proper context and we may rightly understand what's happening in this text. So we know a few things. One, that the book of Job is a true historical account of real historical people that happened in real history. In the first few verses... We learn that Job is a man of great wealth and status, and yet he is also a man whose righteousness is unmasked on the earth at the time. God himself calls Job blameless and upright, which coming from the creator of the universe is a pretty noble title. In the next pages of Job, we read that Satan is permitted by God to test and to try Job in a prideful attempt to prove to God, let's all laugh together, That Job only loves God because of his many blessings, and that Job would curse God if he were to take everything away from him. 
So God providentially decreed that Job would undergo some unbelievable trials at the hand of the evil one. And so now, here, we begin the trials of our dear brother, Job. And he is indeed our brother in Christ. So, beginning in verse 13 through 15. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job, and he said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, we don't know precisely how long it was between when God gave Satan permission to persecute Job, but we do know that at least it took some time to gather a people and to round them up to attack Job's family. We see that he chose the Sabaeans. Now, who were the Sabaeans? Well, they were traders and they were raiders from the village of Sheba, which is located somewhere in southern Arabia. They were Arabian raiders from the Persian Gulf probably somewhere along the modern-day Yemen area. And so these raiders would have come a reasonable distance north uh, to raid where Job lived, but they certainly would have known who he was uh, because he was up in the land of Uz, which is up near Israel and perhaps closer to Egypt. Now, these Sabaeans were raiders, which means they essentially lived on the plunder of the people that they raided. This is precisely the type of people that is ripe for manipulation and use by Satan. These men were men whose hearts were already fixed upon taking spoils from their neighbors and vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. They were fit for Satan to use in this way. So far, Job at this point has lost his 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, as well as the servants who were tending them. Now bear in mind how much value that would have been to Job, right? This is essentially his means of income, right? This was essentially currency, So the Sabaeans made out with over a thousand animals and Job would have felt tremendous loss from this. And then in verse 16, well, he, the messenger, was yet speaking. There came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So before Job even has a moment to breathe or to pray or to cry out to God for his loss, another servant comes from the fields that his sheep were in. And he says that fire of God fell from heaven and burned up not only the sheep, but the servants. Now, you can imagine the sort of building pressure that Job was beginning to feel here. Right? He's not only lost 1,000 cattle, but now he's lost 7,000 sheep and more servants. Now, it says the fire of God fell from heaven and burned them up. But as you may recall, God gave Satan permission to persecute Job. So it's not God directly persecuting Job, but rather Satan under the permission and the decree of the Lord. And so what does this mean, the fire of God? There's a few different possibilities, but I'm inclined to agree with John Gill on the matter, which is most likely that we can understand that this was a flash or flashes of lightning which come down from heaven, the air, and struck the ground, causing a fire, and burned up the field and all that was in it. At the time, the thunder was often called the voice of God, so it also would not be unusual for people to call the lightning the fire of God coming from the heavens. This would also be in step with other sections of Scripture, such as in 2 Kings 1, for example, uh, where it talks about the fire of God, and it's pretty much been well understood to be lightning. Now, furthermore, the news of this is expressed to Job in such a way so as to make him believe that perhaps God had even turned against him 
that God himself was punishing Job. And why were his sheep burned and not stolen like the cattle? Or consider the sheep were used for sacrifices. The sacrifices that Job did on behalf of his children, even if they had sinned unintentionally. The sacrifices used to atone for sin. And so it very well may be that Satan was trying to deceive Job into believing that those sacrifices were no longer acceptable to God Almighty. So we see the conniving mind of Satan taking uh, attacks at Job and several perspectives to try to manipulate him and cause him to turn against the Lord. Verse 17 says, While he was yet speaking, there came another. So again, he's not even had a breath. And another messenger came and said that Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So, Job, before another breath, another messenger comes and brings more tragic news. Another people, the Chaldeans, have now raided and stole all Job's 3,000 camels. The Chaldeans were another group of people, ready and ripe for the plucking by Satan for evil work. They were people who lived in the East Country not far from Job, and there were another people who basically lived upon the raiding and plundering of others. Historically, we believe that they probably did not have much knowledge in the, uh, in the work of agriculture, and so their food was essentially taken by force. Now, Job, again, was well-known in all the land because of his wealth and status before God, and so he was a perfect target for these people led by Satan. Verse 18 and 19 continue. While he was yet speaking, there came another messenger, and he said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, this is the fourth and final messenger that has arrived to give Job the worst of all his news so far. Right? The most beloved of all in his, quote, possession, his children have now been taken from him. All of his kids, his posterity, the children that he raised, the children who were truly a part of himself, have now died. These children were living in peace, as far as we can tell, loving one another, and they were taken violently and unexpectedly all at once. Right? It's not as though they died at the hands of religious persecution, or after battling long illness, or even due to family infighting, or something that could have been predicted, but rather they were slaughtered altogether at once, as though the hand of God had brought down judgment on Job with wrath and vengeance. Again, imagine how Job must feel in this moment. Put yourself in his shoes, or rather his sandals, for a moment here. He's lost all of his wealth so far, his status, his posterity, all in one day. Within a few moments, he's lost all of this. And it wasn't because he had sinned. It wasn't because he was wicked. Now, of course, he was a sinner, but he recognized that. But he was faithful. And we'll come back to this in a little bit. So what was Job's response to this? How would you have responded to such immense tragedy? To lose all of your money, all of your workers, and then all of your children within a few moments. Well, verse 20 and 21 tell us how Job responded. It says, Then Job arose and he tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job's response to this was what? Well, if we rightly understand the context of Job's culture and the religious traditions of the time, he did not act out of uncontrolled sorrow and rage. He arose from where he had been sitting. He tore his robe in sorrow and resentment for what has happened in the same way that the Jews would tear their garments at the hearing of blasphemy against God. Then, either by himself or at the hand of a servant, he shaved his head, which was a common sign of mourning for the dead in the Eastern nations. And then what he did next is the most telling of Job's incredible character and fortitude. He fell on his face, prostrate before God, and he worshipped. Job's response was not to curse God or to blame God for what had happened, but to worship him. Job rightly understood that he came into this world with nothing and that he will leave with nothing. That every single thing that he had was a gift from God. All his, all his possessions, including his children, were God's to take, to give, and to take at his own good pleasure. Job knew that God was sovereign over all things. And the section concludes with verse 22, which says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, let's examine this a bit closer, dear church. There's a boatload we can learn from Job here, most especially in a world where we are taught materialism from birth, the American dream, total independence, personal liberty, and that our value and our worth comes from what we have, right? How big a house we have, how many kids, how expensive a car, how significant our job. We cling to our money and our possessions as though we earned them and like we deserve them. When in reality, it is what we deserve is nothing but wrath and punishment for our heinous sin against a holy and infinite God. So Job's losses here teach us many things. First, it doesn't matter how important, how great, how wealthy, how high your status, or even how pious you are, that no one will ever be guaranteed or promised freedom from affliction and suffering. Job was the most righteous man alive at that time, and he was not free from great and immense suffering and loss. We, the church, the chosen and the elect of God, should expect nothing different. Why should we think that we would be any less subject to suffering and affliction than Job was. Would any of you claim to be as righteous as Job? I certainly would not. In fact, we know the opposite is true. We are promised or even guaranteed suffering as followers of Christ. John 15, 18 through 20 says, if the world hates you, this is Christ talking, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we know two things, that we are going to be persecuted for the name of Christ, and that we live in a fallen world where sickness and death corrodes and corrupts everything around us. So don't get any fancy ideas that if you make yourself important enough, or holy enough, or wealthy enough, that somehow you will escape God's suffering, or the suffering that is in God's world. You won't. Now, these verses also serve to remind us that there is nothing but uncertainty in the outward materials of the world. Money, 
prosperity, lands, friends, family, children, all of it is perishing. All of it can be taken away in a moment. Now, Lord willing, some of those relationships will be eternal in Christ, in the resurrection. But you cannot expect any earthly comfort in the things that the world has to offer. Job's children could not comfort him when he lost all of his material wealth and prosperity because they too were taken. How foolish it is to place our faith and our comfort in things that will burn to the ground one day and that could be taken at any moment. Even something as simple as a recession can remind us that newsflash, your material wealth isn't actually useful for doing anything other than what God commands us to do with it and to honor him with it. So why would we not instead build up our treasures in heaven with the things that will last eternally? Beloved, it is very easy to be taken away by the pleasures of the world, especially in a place like the United States where we are overflowing with abundance. Festivities and enjoyments, money, materials, while not inherently evil, and in fact can be gifts from God and used to glorify him, often bring with them a great danger of being swayed away from our Lord. We cannot turn our eyes to these things for pleasure and comfort. We must instead turn to Christ our Lord, who can and will sustain us in all circumstances. If we have forgotten this, we must repent and ask him to pardon us and to remind us that he is the giver of life and to be reminded that he can just as easily take away everything he has given you. Furthermore, church, let us never go into any of our festivities or our enjoyments or any blessing where we cannot bring our faith in Christ with us, where we cannot ask and possibly even expect God's blessing to be upon us, where it may be in direct opposition to that which God calls good. Job had many offerings and had given many sacrifices on behalf of his sons and to give thanks for his blessings, but we have the one final and perfect offering a final and perfect sacrifice who perfectly atones for our sins and to whom we can trust in and thank for all the blessings that we have. The God who sanctifies us and who brings both blessing and calamity calls us his children. And we would do well to always remember that in light of any gift or trial we endure, that we belong to him. In church, when these trials and afflictions do finally come to our doorstep, and they will, what has Job taught us about how to respond? Worship. Do not dare do anything but worship. True piety, true holiness recognizes that God is right to do as he pleases with his own creation, to give and to take as and seize in afflictions that we endure the work of an almighty father who loves us and thus chastens us or disciplines us in order that we may be partakers of his holiness, as we read in Hebrews 12. We ought to accept and submit whatever trial God has for us. We may not understand why they are happening, or what good might come from it, or whatever reason there is for them, but we do know that God has decreed them, that they are for our good, he has decreed them, he has right to send them to us, and he has very good reasons for them. And we should not forget that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Right? Romans 8.28. Job endured the greatest of losses, 
and in sorrow he did not sin. It's not that he was without sin, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but rather Job's response to affliction was right and good and righteous. He did not blame God. He did not curse God. He did not so much as even complain. Not a single unsavory word came out of his mouth. Instead, he worshipped his king, his Lord. He did, as Romans 5, 3, and 4 says, which is to rejoice in our suffering. In church, there's hope because the calamities will come. But there is hope. And I want to leave you with hope. Hope that King Jesus alone can promise. There are a few verses that I think we should look to for encouragement, and I could I could read off dozens. But two that stuck out to me are first Romans 8:18. 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Dear church, remember and recognize that whatever afflictions we do endure is absolutely nothing compared to the glory that waits us in eternity with our King. None of our suffering is meaningless. None of our afflictions are a waste. doesn't matter how tragic or how intense. There's purpose behind it. Especially if you're a child of God. He loves you. And he is going to work it out for your good. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You need to embrace your suffering as Job did. You need to worship and thank God for it, and trust that God is using it for your good and for the good of his people, church. And if there are any among you who don't have this hope, I would encourage you, I would urge you, I would plead with you at this time to repent and to trust in Christ alone for salvation. For there is no hope in any other name under heaven. He alone can save you by faith in him alone. Nothing else will ever bring you the comfort and the joy and the peace that is beyond all understanding. And then you don't have to die in your sins, but you can be forgiven of them. And you can have the hope and the joy that we see in Job during life's most difficult afflictions and most painful trials. You can lose everything and you can have joy. You can lose everything and you can sing out to God Almighty and thank him for what he's doing in your life. What other hope is there? Is there anything like that that this world offers? Of course not. There is nothing like our king. Amen?